This morning we are embarking on a, a new series uh, about worship and the Psalms. Um, and this very much does follow on, well, this morning very much does follow on from Paul Ratton's excellent talk last week. And if you haven't heard it, I wasn't here, but caught up with it during the week. If you haven't heard it, I really would recommend it to you. Uh, essential listening, um, I think, for us going forward. Um, and, and this morning really does, I hope, follow on from that. Uh, this morning is called Authentic Worship, and there is a verse there, Worship in Spirit and in Truth, and that is a verse many of you will be familiar with from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 4, and verse 24. When um, a Samaritan woman he was talking to he tried to engage Jesus in a debate about which was the true temple, the one in Jerusalem or the one they had in Samaria, and tried to sort of get Jesus involved in what was then a very current debate about, you know, really to do with worship, how should we worship and so on. And Jesus cut through um, what was a, a genuine current debate at the time and basically got to the heart of the issue and talked about the fact that true worshippers should worship in spirit and in truth. And I, I kind of wanted that to be a bit of a keystone for um, what we talk about this morning. Um, over the next uh, number of weeks, uh, nine weeks I think, um, we are going to be looking at worship in many different aspects and looking at how the Psalms uh, provides us with a framework for looking at worship in all those different aspects. Um, spoiler alert, uh, in talking about worship, we are not just embarking on a 10-week series about how we sing on a Sunday morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at things a bit more broadly than that, which again, I want to unwrap a bit more just as a bit of a taster uh, this morning. Um, but this morning, I do want to in try and introduce, I've got set myself a bit of a challenge, um, I want to try and introduce the entire series and the series subject of worship. And I also want to give a bit of an introduction to the book of Psalms. <clears throat> so it is quite challenging, given that I could spend quite a long time talking about just the word worship. And some of you will have heard me talk about it in the past and various situations. Um, so I'm sort of attempting, as I think it says in Alice in Wonderland somewhere, um, you know, an impossible thing before breakfast or after breakfast. Um, so in order to try and limit myself, ha, you're going to be amazed, I'm going to do it loosely under three headings. And those three, surely not you, I hear you cry. And uh, those three headings are what, how, and who. Um, we're going to be looking very briefly of the what is worship. What is worship? Now, I know we're going to be exploring that throughout the entire series, but I just want to give a little bit of an introduction uh, to what is worship. Secondly, how, how should we read this book called the Psalms? I mean, you know, how. I don't mean... Do you use a written Bible or do you use your phone or whatever? I just mean, how should we approach that book? And just a little bit about the book of Psalms to give us just a bit of background information. 
And finally, the who. Who do we bring to worship? Who do we bring to worship? And again, here I'm not just talking about who you might invite to a guest meeting. So, first of all, what? What is worship? And as I just referred to it, is it just part... I mean, it's it's easy, easy answer, really, isn't it? Worship is the bit of the meeting or service, depending on your choice of language, that we do between... You know, we're, we're, we're very free, aren't we? we? We don't have a liturgy, but we do this between about 25 to 11 and about 11 o'clock when we quite often have some notices and the children go out and then we have another 10 minutes before the talk. That's worship, isn't it? Have you noticed that? That's, let's be real about this. But of course, it's not just that. But the, the language we use we use can tend to reinforce that so we will talk about a time of worship we're now going to have a time of worship what a lovely time of worship that was or if we're not feeling quite so positive or i didn't think much of the time of worship this morning you wouldn't think that this morning we talk about in our setting we talk about worship Leaders, which, sorry to disappoint you, it's, it's, it's a term that was kind of invented in the 70s, really, or reinvented in the 70s for a sort of new church movement. Churches didn't have worship leaders in the sense that we talk about them. We'll talk about... <laughs> Here we go, we're getting a little bit more esoteric now. We talk about moving from a time of praise into a time of worship, which in my experience generally means we move from doing the loud songs to the quiet songs. I see smiles from the worship leaders in the room. Oh, and by the way, whilst we're talking about types of song in We still call ourselves New Church, don't we? It's not that new. But anyway, in New Church, you know, we were very pleased because we were moving away from these stuffy things called hymns to these much more modern (laughs) songs. Um, Do you know what the word hymn means? Some of you might know this. It means a song of praise. (laughs) So we moved away from songs of praise and we did songs of praise. Actually, I think there was a shift, and I sort of look around the room, and apologies to the younger people amongst us, but there was a bit of a shift back in the 70s, early 80s, I think, that I, it took me a while to analyse it, but I realised what the difference was between the hymns that I grew up singing, I was brought up in a, in a small denominational church, and the songs that we were now singing. And I think a key difference, apart from the style of music, was moving from songs about God to songs sung to God. It's a very generalised definition, because we still do sing songs about God. But 
that was a shift. And I just wanted, and please forgive me, this is pure nostalgia for me and five other people in the room, <laughs> or maybe a few more. Um, I think a very uh, influential part of that shift was a particular musical that came over from the United States of America, which I had the privilege of, on the south coast of England, playing in a short tour of around a number of different settings, and I know there was stuff going on up here as well, which was a musical by a couple called Jimmy and Carol Owens, called... Bom bom bom. Yeah, there we go. That was the opening song. But there was one particular song in that musical that now sounds pretty dated, and we're going to just play a very short snatch of it. But I think it it kind of helped shift things for many people. Tim, can you just play that extract now? Holy, holy. For the first time probably in my experience as a young Christian, had me singing to God rather than just about God. I'm sort of making fun a little bit of our use of language and as with any code language, In one sense, there's nothing wrong with having the code language as long as we all understand the code. Where it can become a problem if if it does reinforce to us um, unhelpful stereotypes of, in this case, what worship is actually all about. It can also cause a problem if we are communicating out, maybe to the wider body of Christ. I've got one story about that. A number of years ago, and for a quite a long time, I was part of uh, a national group. Long story, however, came to be part of it. I shouldn't have been part of it, but somehow I was part of it, and then they were quite happy I was part of it, even though I had no business being there. But anyway, I was part of this national group called the Churches Together in England Group for Evangelization, a snappy title for a group. And uh, as part of what we were doing, there was at one point there was uh, some working groups looking at different styles of churches meeting together. So they wanted to send out uh, a survey to a number of a sample of different types of church. So they came to me and asked me for some names and addresses of um, people they could send uh, this survey to. Um, from the new church networks. So I did a bit of asking around and got them some, some places to um, send their questionnaire out. And it, was, you know, it wasn't just all Pioneer or it wasn't just us. It was a number of different new churches uh, around the country, different networks. And when they got the answers back in, the guys who'd sent it out, the next time I saw them said, Andy, we've got the answers back from the new churches, but we're really a bit puzzled by them. Because it seems to us, reading the answers, that in your churches, you don't have preaching, you don't have prayer, and you don't have reading of the Bible. And I said, well, that's not true. (laughs) So they said, well, yeah, look at these answers. The problem was, on their questionnaire, 
they had asked the question, in your worship, what do you do? Words to that effect. And they were using the word worship in the sense that various churches all... When you walk past a denominational church building, on the board outside, what does it say? It says, morning worship, evening worship. Quite often. Meaning the service. The whole thing. And that's what they meant in the survey. But of course, all these new churches went, oh, they're asking us lots about our singing. Because in new churches, when we talk about worship we tend to be talking about music and singing. So what is worship? Well, oh, wrong button. Kind of key verse, familiar to many of us, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Some translations, this is your acceptable worship. This is your spiritual worship. So worship, according to Paul here in Romans, is not just about singing. It's about offering ourselves not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. Offering all of our lives. All of life. Hence, the title of this whole teaching series, Worship in All of Life. Last week, um, Paul Ratton talk to us about Psalm 40, and I just want to read a couple of verses from that that stood out to me as I listened again during the week. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings, meaning those of the religion that David, the writer, was involved in. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come. I take joy in doing your will, O God, for your instructions are written on my heart. Not all the ritual, but a bringing of ourselves offered to him to do his will. Need to move on. How should we read the Psalms? What, what is this book that we're basing on and how does it relate to worship? Well, a few little facts. Um, it's often, you'll see that it's, it's described often as the longest book in the Bible. And that's apparently a bit of nerdy knowledge, really. It, it has got the most verses, but if you were to go back to the original language and then convert the characters to ASCII code, it actually comes in third after Jeremiah and Genesis. But it's often referred to as the longest book in the Bible, which is interesting given its subject matter and given what it is, the weight that is given to it. It is the only book that we have actually states in the original texts that it has different authors. Other books may have 
different authors. Some, for example, many scholars will say that the book of Isaiah is not all written by one person. Some conservative scholars will insist that it is. Many will allow for the fact that there are more than one per, there is more than one person writing uh, that book. It's not a problem to me, really. Uh, but Psalms makes it really clear. 73 are ascribed to David. They're not all written by David. Bible doesn't claim that, but 73 are attributed to David. There's apparently one from Moses, 12 from Asaph, a couple from Solomon, and several other people. It is a book full of imagery and metaphor, simile, picture language, because it is a book of song lyrics and poetry. So, of course, it's full of all of that sort of stuff. And the very title of the book makes it clear that it is a book of song lyrics, essentially. And here I'm going to do that thing that speakers, myself very much included, mea culpa, um, do all the time, which is, if you go back to the original Greek or Hebrew... I was listening to a podcast during the week, comedy podcast... But, <laughs> based on the classics. Anyway, um, and in it, one of the people said, uh, at which point Plato set up his academy, which is where we get the word academy from. (laughs) I thought it was funny. Um, The title is derived from the Greek word samos, which means a song sung to harp music, from saline to pluck strings. Sorry, keyboard players. It's actually to do with plucking strings. Anyway. Ah, yes. Well, they hit them, don't they? <laughs> I suppose. Anyway. So, yeah, the very word makes it clear. This is originally stuff that's designed to be sung. Um, it has a context. All books in the Bible have a context. This, it, Psalms, of course, has a context of time, understanding, circumstance, and occasion. What do I mean by that? Well, the people who wrote them wrote them in their time with the understanding they had of God at the time. Many of the Psalms, in terms of context, they were not initially written for private contemplation. I mean, we sit in our rooms and we read it by ourselves. But that's not how they were written. That's not their original context. Some of them are very personal, but several were written for state occasions. They were written for corporate worship. There's various different types, um, including a big chunk, a big chunk of the Psalms come under a heading that we call Technically, lament. Hmm. Doesn't sound very happy, does it? But a big chunk of the Psalms deal with the subject of lament. And because it's such a big chunk, we will in the series be spending quite a bit of time on that. Maybe that's not a subject we often explore very much. They are rooted in the various writers' lives. You know, I often like to say that the Bible is predominantly narrative. 
God has chosen to use narrative, story, to communicate to us. Stories about real people. True stories about real people. And of course, Psalms, the longest book, on the face of it, doesn't really fit into that model. But it does. Because these songs, these poems, come out of life. It wasn't that someone sat down to abstractly think, what can I say about God or about life? They come from life. They come from the narrative of people's lives. In, um, in looking at a few things online, I came across this quote. They passionately record a person's response to God given their situation and circumstances at the time. They passionately record. They're not dry. They passionately record a person's response to God given their situation and circumstances at the time. And that's why they can be a model for us. Because they deal with a wide range of circumstance. They do deal with times of great rejoicing. Personal, national. But they also deal with times of great challenge. Great sadness. Sorrow. Confusion. Words that occur more than once in the Psalms. How long, O oh God? Anyone ever prayed that prayer? And because of that, because of the wide range of circumstance of life, even though the, the culture that they're dealing with is different to ours, they deal with life. They deal with heart issues. Because of that, they can be a model to us in worship. Which, which kind of brings me on to the last section, the who do we bring to worship. By which I mean which version of us. Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, there's only one version of me, Andy. Mm. We do have different versions of ourselves, don't we? Work version, home version, husband version, father version, wife version, friend version, phone version. The classic phone voice. Dealing with customer service and complaints version. That you really wouldn't want to bring to the pub for a pint with your friend, would you? Or the church. We have different versions of ourselves. To greater or lesser extent. Earlier days of computer version. There was this great little acronym. WYSIWYG. Which meant. What you see is what you get. Is that true about us? 
And, and just in exploring this question of who we bring to worship, I want to look at one particular psalm. You don't need to look it up because I'm going to put it up on the screen as we go through it. But I want to look at the model of Psalm 3 to see about how it can help us in our worship and in our response to God. So, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, I have so many enemies, so many are against me, so many are saying God will never rescue him. This is a psalm of David. And um, this is another sort of quite familiar form of words in the, in the psalms that David wrote. David did spend, to be fair, in his life quite a lot of time uh, facing uh, persecution, um, being on the run. And even as a king, he had his fair share of enemies and situations that happened to him where he was then calling out to God, I've got so many enemies. He was a leader. <laughs> Leaders can sometimes feel like this. Moving on. Um, and here is an honest declaration from David in approaching God in worship and prayer that not everything is going his way. He feels up against it and he feels quite free to tell God so. So what's the model for us? Well, quite simply, we can do the same. Our worship in all its forms, to be real, can't always be bright and cheerful if that's not where we're at. Not everything in life is easy. And our cry might well be, Oh Lord, I have so many problems. Many are against me. And the cry of the world might well be, well, God can't do anything about that. David, who, by the way, the testimony of Scripture in both Old Testament and New Testament is that he was a man after God's own heart. So it is worth taking note of how David approaches God. David feels free to express his challenges and problems to God. Verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. This sounds like the sort of thing that would make a good uh, worship, i.e. quiet, song. Bethel or Elevation could do a good job with these words. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, who lifts my head high. If the grand piano was in here, I was going to ask Sheila to play, and I could have carried on extemporizing. But I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. (laughs) 
David moves into considering the fact that um, actually he has known God's deliverance. I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Good promise text material, these couple of verses. Remember promise text, you know? Who had the, the, the kind of desk calendars that had the date and then a little verse underneath? Some of you nodding. Quite enthusiastically, you might still have them. Um, that's fine. Good material for those here. I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. David's moved to this point now of, you know, confidence and great and God's going to deliver me. He's getting to a good place. He's talked about his situation. He's remembered who God is. He's remembered what God's like. He's declaring his confidence is God. He will deliver him. Hallelujah. So far, so good. So let's get to the end of the psalm. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Now, this sounds more like a song from the 1980s. We'd have had fun with this in the 1980s. Um, you know, arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Every <laughs> Victory comes from you. So all together, arise, O God. The younger ones amongst you, don't worry, you didn't miss. Well, you did miss. It was great, but... <laughs> Except, there is a bit of a problem, because as you might notice, <laughs> it's not just a formatting error, I have actually missed a bit of the psalm out. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God, slap all my enemies in the face, shatter the teeth of the wicked... Now, we'd have left that out of the song. The version, for example, of um, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Now, in the settings I was in, we didn't then go on to sing the horse and rider you've thrown into the sea, which is in the original text. We used to sing the grave is empty, won't you come and see, which was much more palatable. doesn't sound very godly, David. Oh God, please punch my enemies in the face and break their teeth. Sounds a bit like the kind of typecast Glaswegian threat. You know, you're looking at me, you're chewing your brick, you lose your teeth. Anyway, please God, punch my enemies in the face and break their teeth. Doesn't sound very godly. How is that a model for us? in worship and prayer. We're not really very comfortable with that. And while we ponder that, I wonder if we could just listen again to words you might have read this past week, either you read it yourself, you might have heard Anthea doing uh, a recording of it from Psalm 139 that Jeff is going to read to us, verses 1 to 12. Thank you, Annie. Psalm 139, verse 1 to 12. O Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel 
and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Thanks, Jeff. So, very simply in conclusion, who do we bring to worship? We bring our authentic self. That psalm reminds us that God knows us through and through. He knows us intimately. If we try and wear a mask, who are we fooling? Other than ourselves. Is it absolutely right, godly, for David to pray for God to smash his enemy's teeth in? Probably not. Is it right for him to say it, if that's how he's feeling? Yes. Because God knows us through and through. So, as we finish, perhaps we could just close our eyes again. And let's just spend 30 seconds being honest before God and quietly telling him how we're feeling right now. Jesus said that true worshippers worship in spirit and in truth. Let's bring our truth to God. Trusting that he can carry us in that. Amen. Amen. So I trust you're looking forward to the series I am as we go forward to learn more about worship through this lens of the Psalms. Thanks, Andy. That was brilliant. Really good.